Sermon Series. Come on, somebody. Part 48 today. We've been in this since the summer of 2021 off and on, and we are coming up, like I said, on part 48. The plan is to finish it on the week after Easter with part 60, so that's how many we have left. And the reason why we do this, the reason why we're working verse by verse through this book is we want to be a church that is just utterly saturated in the scriptures. You know, I believe in also doing, you know, topical sermon series at times, but I do want to continue to do these what are called expository sermon series where you work verse by verse through a book because I want to show how to read the Bible verse by verse and how to interpret it correctly. We want these Sundays to really be a demonstration for how you can read the Bible and apply it to your life on your own time as well. So as we continue to go verse by verse through this book, my prayer is that this time would enrich your own personal devotional time with Jesus. So today we're going to be in chapter 14. And if you remember, way back on November 20th, we tackled all of chapter 13 in one day. That was quite the undertaking. It was quite the morning. If you want to go back and check it out, you're welcome to do that. But in chapter 13, what happened was Jesus predicted that the temple would fall. Okay, He predicted that it would come down. And it did come down about 40 years later in 70 AD when the Romans sieged uh, Jerusalem and took down the temple. And this was really the culmination of chapters 11 through 13. So Mark is kind of split up into different sections. And chapter 11 through 13 was one section. And the whole section was, it was really about Jesus coming against the temple and coming against the religious establishment. He was going to make the temple unnecessary through his life death and resurrection, he was going to do what the temple was supposed to do, which was to connect people to God. The temple had failed at doing that, and the religious leaders had failed at doing that, and Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to be the one who actually connects you to God, and it culminated in chapter 13 by him saying the whole thing is coming down. And now we're shifting into a new section with chapter 14, which is really all about the crucifixion of Jesus. So for the next 12 weeks or so, that's what we're going to be talking about is Jesus' death and then on Easter, the resurrection. It's going to be a great day. But yeah, today we're going to look at chapter 14, verse 1. So just as the temple will be destroyed, Jesus is going to tell us here that he's going to be destroyed as well by pagan enemies. Okay, so let's look at it in verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth And kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Which is true, right? It's happening today, right now. Okay, so we're a fulfillment of that verse. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. Okay, the sermon title this morning is Extravagant Love. Extravagant Love. All right, let's pray over it. Lord, we thank you for this morning this opportunity to be in your house together as a family. 
And Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us. I, I pray, Lord, uh, not just for a good sermon today or good teaching for our minds, but I pray for an encounter with your love. This text, as we're talking about extravagant love, it really requires uh, something to happen other than just teaching. There needs to be an encounter this morning. So Holy Spirit, we invite you uh, to just move in this place and to do your thing. God, I pray that, that this sermon would help draw us closer to you. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so growing up, my dad and my brothers and I loved watching professional wrestling. Okay, so every Monday night, we would watch that first WCW Nitro and then later WWE Raw. It's, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Well, for us, it was a family tradition. And my youngest brother, Derek, and I took our passion for wrestling to the next step and would buy these little action figures uh, so we could create our own personal wrestling world. So there should be a picture of me and Derek at this time. So, so that shows... Uh, the season where we played with wrestling guys. I think you can see my cool earring on the side. Loop earring, come on, somebody. But uh, it was sweet. But, but so when I was around 10, my family moved to this new house, and there was a closet off the hallway where we could go to play with our wrestling guys. And Derek and I would sit in this closet for hours together, and we wouldn't have a shirt on 99% of the time, and we'd play <laughs> in our own little world. So here's the closet. You can see the WWE logo on the door there and all the rings. So this was taken like yesterday. Okay, so they've left the wrestling guys in there for quite some time. I think they're cleaning it out now because I asked them to take a picture of it. But, but you see, this was our place, right? We would come in here for hours and play with our WWE action figures. So our love for professional wrestling led us to do some really weird things like sit in a closet for hours together. Human beings, we are passionate creatures at heart. We can get really excited about things. And you see this in, in children. They often pick something that they're passionate about, and they just dive headfirst into it. So I'm seeing it right now with my daughter, Jane. She loves baby dolls. She has way too many, and she wants more. And then my son, Abram, he loves the Disney movie Cars, but he also just loves cars in general. He gets like jacked up when we go into a parking lot. He's like, cars, cars. He cannot get enough of cars. And in terms of the movie, he would watch it over and over and over again. And in fact, he does. I've seen it many, many times. I love cars now. He, he has a bunch of cars, toys, cars, blankets, cars, pillowcase, and so forth. He loves cars. In fact, the main word he says right now is cars, right? That's like his word. And we don't just see this in children, though. We see it in adults as well. We see it in teenagers. The, the passions, they will change and they will morph, but, but we still get passionate about things. So, you know, this is on display on Saturdays in Iowa City as Iowans flock to Kinnick Stadium uh, to watch the Hawkeyes play. And you see it as well on Twitter as people duke it out over politics, right? They just, they fight over it. Uh, you can see this in the evenings as people will, you know, binge watch Netflix shows, watch an entire season in one night, just dive into it. And you see this in the way that, that people will change everything about themselves if they meet a special someone and they fall in love with them. All of a sudden, they'll start to change to kind of be the person that that person wants them to be. Uh, we're passionate creatures. We love to throw ourselves into sports, politics, hobbies, people, and entertainment. And we could even take it so far to say that sometimes we worship these things. Right? It becomes this kind of weird worship. There's something in the human heart that compels us to worship. It's as if God put it there, right? There's this desire to throw our hearts into something. We were made to worship, and we'll find something to worship, whether that be a deity, 
of some kind or something in this world. So the question this morning, just as we get going here, is what do you worship? You know, you don't have to say it out loud, but, but be honest with yourself. What's the most important thing to you? What gets your devotion? What gets your heart? It could be your family, your spouse, your children, politics, sports, hobbies. It could be anything. And these things can all be good and important things in your life, right? I don't think Jesus wants us to you know, check our passions at the door. I think he wants us to be passionate people, but, but we have to be careful because sometimes it can cross over into worship. These good things can become ultimate things in our life, right? They can become the main thing in our life. So do you worship one of those things or does, or does Jesus get your worship? Is he truly the primary desire of your heart? Obviously, nobody's perfect and we all can get off at times. Our priorities can, can get out of whack, but do you even want Jesus to be your primary desire? Do you want him to be the love of your heart? Is that your goal? If so, I think our passage in Mark can kind of give you a picture of what it looks like to truly give Jesus our heart. It gives us a vivid example of what it looks like to truly worship Jesus. It, it shows us what sold out devotion to him looks like. And before we dig into our passage, we need to know that, that Mark is yet again using a literary technique it's referred to as the sandwiching technique where he'll put, uh, or put a story in the middle of another story. So, or so the middle story is the key to understanding the story on either ends. Okay, so in this case, in, in verses 1 and 2 and then 10 and 11, he talks about Jesus' betrayal that's coming. And then in the middle, we see this radical act of devotion by this unnamed woman who is an outsider. So on the ends, we see about Judas an insider who's going to betray Jesus. And then on the inside, we see this outsider woman who shouldn't have been there. She wasn't supposed to do that. It was very, it was very wrong in that culture to interrupt male fellowship to, to come in as a woman unless, or unless you're serving food. Don't get mad at me. That's just what the culture was like, okay? I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm joking. It's okay to kind of laugh for me and make me feel better. But anyways, so, so the point that Mark's trying to make is he is pointing to the woman as an example to be followed. He's saying, look at this insider who does this terrible thing, and then look at this outsider, and this person is the one you should follow. Unlike Judas, who gave up Jesus for some money after three years of close fellowship with him, she gave Jesus her whole heart, and she laid everything at his feet. And Mark, he's inviting us to reject the self-centered way of Judas and embrace the Jesus-centered way of the woman. And one of the ways leads to death, and one leads to life. He's calling us to choose life. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to take it verse by verse, just kind of work through it, and get a picture of what true worship looks like. So verse 1 and 2 again, it says, it was, not, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so Mark, he starts by telling us that this event took place two days before Passover. He does that on purpose. The Passover celebration, it remembers what God did in Exodus 12 when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Okay, before that, the Lord had sent several plagues on Egypt to try to get Pharaoh to let the people go, and he would not do it. And then in Exodus 12, the Lord tells the Israelites that he's going to perform one last plague of killing the firstborn son in Egypt. And if they want to be spared from this plague, they need to sacrifice a lamb and put blood on the doors of their house to protect them or protect them from this plague. So the Jewish people, the Israelites, they do this. They put the blood on the door and the angel of death comes through Egypt and kills all the firstborn sons. But then the Israelites are able to go free as Pharaoh doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. He lets them 
go free. They start running away. Then Pharaoh changes his they changes his mind again, and they get stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, and then God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground, and then the Egyptians are like, yay, the sea's part. They run into the sea as well, and then the water goes, and they die, okay? So the point is, God frees them from Egypt. God frees the Israelites from Egypt. This is on purpose. Every year, Mark tells us this on purpose. Every year, Passover time was freedom time. It was a time of joy and celebration and remembering the faithfulness of God. He's a protector and a deliverer. He takes care of his children. And to celebrate the Passover, the Jewish people, they would, they would sacrifice a year-old lamb or goat in the temple and then eat it in private gatherings after sunset. And then it also began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which also remembers the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. Okay, for the religious authorities, Passover was not a great time to arrest Jesus. Okay, because Jerusalem would be packed with visitors who came to town to celebrate. During this time, there was a nationalistic fervor, like, hey, God's our deliverer. Right now, we're being oppressed by the Romans, right? And there could have been this uprising that could happen if they did something, if they did something foolish, like arrest this you know, potential Messiah in front of everybody. So instead of doing it in front of everybody, they're trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth, so then there's not a riot that, that comes up. And that's where Judas comes in. He, he privately betrays Jesus, and this theme of Passover, it's going to be running in the background of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion that, that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And Jesus, here's the part you need to get. Jesus seemed to purposefully choose the Passover as the time of his crucifixion. In the previous few days, he purposely agitated the religious authorities by cleansing the temple, by arguing with them, and by predicting the fall of the temple. It's as if he was asking to be crucified during the Passover he does this to make a point about what he came to do. Jesus, he came to be our Passover lamb. Just as, the, or just as the Israelites needed to sacrifice lambs to be spared from the angel of death, Jesus himself was going to be sacrificed to save us from our sins. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls, or he calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb freed the Israelites, the blood of Jesus can cleanse us of all of our sins. This is what he came to do. And this is what the cross is all about. In Ephesians, Paul says this. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Here's the deal. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the, of the glory of God. And without Jesus, there's no hope. We are headed to hell. We deserve death and punishment and eternal separation from God. That's the price of our sins. But because of his grace, because of his furious love for us, because of his ferocious love, we can be forgiven for our sins and have our penalty paid. And we can trade places with Jesus. He can take on our sin and we take on his righteousness. His blood can, can cover us and wash away all of our shame. It's... It's with this idea of Passover and this idea of God's extravagant love that, that then Mark takes us to a story about someone who shows extravagant love towards God or towards Jesus. It says this in, in verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a purinard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Okay, the, this woman, she broke all rules of etiquette. 
as Jesus reclines at the table with his disciples, she comes in with his alabaster flask of Pirinard, and it would have been worth about a year's wages. She breaks it, and she pours it over his head. Can you imagine taking your year's salary and giving it to God? Saying, here you go. This is what the woman did. It was more than that. The women in this context would not have been able to make that much money with the jobs they had. Okay, so this seems to be something that was passed down. Okay, it seems to have been a family heirloom. So it wasn't just a, a thing of monetary value. It had sentimental value. Think about the sentimental things in your life. She like smashes it and she pours it over Jesus' head. She doesn't seem to care. She is so undone by Jesus. She is so undone by his love that she wants to show him love back. It's crazy how she didn't just use a little bit too. She didn't just be like, oh, here's a little dab of oil. She smashes that bottle. She was showing Jesus uh, the totality of her love. She was showing, or showing him the totalness of it. Okay, she understood something about Jesus that I think many of us failed to understand. And she hadn't even witnessed his death and resurrection yet. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't rose from the grave yet. But she understood something that so many of us fail to see. Jesus is worth our extravagant love. He's worth it. He's worth our everything. He's worthy of it all. Come on, Trey, get up here. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, he's worth it, right? We just sang about it. He's worth our extravagant love. He's worth our everything. If he really is the son of God, if he really is the one who spoke the cosmos into existence and then he came and died for our sins, then this should cause us to respond by giving him everything. Hear me this morning. We don't lay things at Jesus' feet. We don't give him everything because we're trying to earn something from him, but because we're just in love with him. Our love is a response to his love. We love because he first loved us. This woman was not driven by trying to earn something from Jesus. She was just absolutely beside herself in love for him. And love can cause us to do some crazy things. It's beautiful. But to the disciples and to the onlookers, this woman's act of devotion was over the top and wasteful. They say this, in, or it says this in verse four and five. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300, 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her Okay, they wondered why Jesus would allow her to do that when she could have used it to take care of the poor. She could have used her money for more practical things. Her act of extravagance towards Jesus didn't make sense to them. And when Mark says they scolded her, what he's saying in the Greek is they snorted at her. <laughs> They're mad, right? They're angry. He's trying to make a point. They were ticked off. And some of you just woke up. Welcome. All right. They had no problem with showing... Okay, so they had no problem with showing love to Jesus in moderation, but this was over the top. This was too much. This made them angry. And we might look down on them today in hindsight, knowing what Jesus has done. We might look at them and say, why would you get mad at this woman? She's, you know, showing Jesus her love, but I don't think we're that different from them. N.T. Wright says this. He says, it always happens when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition and to pour out their valuables, their stories, their dancing, their music, before him just the way they feel like doing, that others looking on find the spectacle embarrassing and distasteful, right? That's kind of how we react. We often scoff at extravagance. We can look down at the onlookers, but honestly, we're not that different from them. We often scoff at extravagance. And we're often okay with moderation, but we struggle with over-the-top acts of love like this. If someone you loved wanted to give their whole salary away to the poor or to the local church or to kingdom builders, 
Think about that. What would you think? What would you do? I know for me, I'm, I'm going to be straight with you. If someone tried to give their whole salary to kingdom builders, I'd probably say, hey, maybe keep some of that for yourself. Right? Take care of your own needs. Be wise about this, right? Or how about if someone you love wanted to go on the foreign mission field and spend their life serving the poor or preaching the gospel to the unreached? I know if it was my children, who I'd be like, you need to really think about this. Are you sure you don't want to be an associate pastor at Scent Church and just hang out with me for your whole life? <laughs> or how about if someone gets overly emotional during worship, all of a sudden they're weeping next to you in worship and it's kind of bothering you, like, what are you doing? I'm trying to have my time with the Lord. Keep it together. <laughs> I know for me, if I see people, or see people getting overly emotional, I, you know, I want that to happen, but sometimes I can think, oh, they're kind of getting caught up in the moment. They're just being emotional. I believe many times we scoff at extravagance. And we prefer reasonable displays of love. We prefer moderation. Moderation feels safe. It feels sensible. It makes us feel more comfortable about our moderation. And we prefer to check the religious boxes and just call it good. Many of us, you know, we may give our tithe, but to give above that, that's just extreme, right? That's already 10%. I can't give above that. Or we may cheer on foreign missionaries and even give them money of the ones we don't know, but to consider going ourselves to actually listen to Jesus and see if he's calling us to the foreign mission field or to support the ones we love in their attempt to go to the foreign mission field, oh, no, no, no. Or we may listen to Christian music and say a prayer before bed, but to passionately and recklessly declare our love for Jesus publicly or to step out in faith privately as we lean into him to get on our knees or to really go after Jesus with, with physical acts of worship, that's just too much. That's not for us, right? We're Iowans, right? We like to keep it like in the box, right? Like, you know, we're very square. It's okay, I am too. We're all square together, so don't get mad at me. But anyways, the point is, we might be more like the onlookers in this story than we care to admit. And Jesus, what does he do? He responds to their anger by defending this woman. Imagine being the woman, right? She just puts herself out there. She's like going for it. She's like, I'm taking a step of faith today. I'm gonna stretch myself in my worship. And then they yell at her, All right? Think about, how you, or think about how you would feel if you came up here and you're like, you're going after the Lord at the altar and we all start saying, ah, go sit in your seat. That'd be very uncomfortable, right? You'd feel very vulnerable. She was feeling vulnerable in this moment. She was feeling weak. And then Jesus and his Jesus way defends her. He says this in verse six through eight. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Okay, so what the disciples called ridiculous, Jesus called beautiful. Jesus, he's all about the heart. Her act was the overflow of a heart that was just so in love with him. And this is what Jesus wants for each of us. It may not look like this woman. You don't have to be just like this woman, right? We're all different. It may not look like that. But Jesus wants to raise up a people who will truly walk in our footsteps and pour out our love for him. Jesus, he's looking for extravagant lovers. That's what he's after. Although Jesus clearly cared for the poor, right? He, his ministry makes that very clear. There's no doubt about the fact that he cared for the poor. He saw pouring out love to him as more important. He said, there's always going to be poor people to give to, but you're not always gonna have me in the flesh. And when we embrace this, this kind of life of showing Jesus the totality of our love, when we embrace this kind of life, beautiful things start to happen. Okay, the first thing that happens is, is when we 
pour out our love to him extravagantly, we are in the center of his will for our lives. So right in the center, when we pour out love to him, we are right where he wants us to be. Okay, this woman wasn't aware of it, but, but God was using her. She was right in step with what God was doing in that, in that moment. In her spontaneous act of love, she was anointing Jesus' body for burial. She was preparing him for death. She had no idea. She was preparing him for death. She was in step with what God was doing. I believe when we live in a place of love for God, we'll be smack right in the middle of what's best for us. And by living in love for God, this woman got to participate in God's salvation plan by preparing him for burial. When we pour out our love for Jesus, we get in step with God's will for our lives. But that's not it. When we love Jesus extravagantly, something else happens. We find life and joy. We find life and joy. As we talked about earlier, we were made to worship. There's something in us that just wants to worship. The question is not if we worship, but who or what we worship. If we worship the things of this world, we will reap death because nothing in this world can hold up to the weight of our worship. It can't hold up under that, right? Some football teams are gonna lose today, right? Let's hope it's not the Bengals for Steve Anderson's sake, but there's some football teams that are gonna lose. Maybe you like the Chiefs, so if you do, sorry, I picked Steve's team over yours. But uh, anyways, go Bengals. But <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. So the point is, the things we put our trust in, they can't hold up to the weight of our worship. They're not solid enough to put our trust in. Things in this world are not solid enough. But Jesus, he is a sure foundation. He's a safe place to put our weight in. On the subject, Timothy Keller quotes a guy named David Foster Wallace in his book, Encounters with Jesus. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning, best-selling author, and he was on the top of his profession when he said this at a, I think it was a college commencement speech. He says this, everybody worships, and the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then, or then you will never have enough and never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Okay, so Wallace, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a religious person. But he understood that everybody trusts in something. Everybody finds their salvation somewhere, Everybody worships. We need to be careful about what we worship. And actually, he committed suicide a couple years after this. So his words, they haunt us today. He says, something will eat you alive. It's gonna eat you alive. If we wanna be fully alive and live the lives we were created for, we must, instead of following the example of worshiping the things of this world, we need to follow the example of the woman. You know, Jesus, he just told us a few chapters ago, this was back in the summer, he said, forever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's an upside down kingdom. Losing our lives for Jesus is the best place to be. It's the best and safest place to be. In fact, because this woman poured out her love for Jesus, she made an impact on the world that continues to this day. In verse nine, it says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, so when we love Jesus 
or Jesus extravagantly, we impact the world. This woman's act of passion is still being talked about in 2023, 2,000 years later. It's in all four gospels. It's one of the only stories in all four gospels. When people get truly passionate and give their all for Jesus, it makes an impact. Okay, so moderate, temperate love, it's not very compelling, but passionate, give it all, lay down your life, love for Jesus, it moves the world. John Tyson said this, he says, there's, there's more power in a moment of passion than in a lifetime of mediocrity. Passionate devotion moves the world. It shocks others out of their complacency. It pours fuel onto the pilot light that flickers in the human heart, igniting a response. Okay, here's the deal. From the beginning of Sent Church, I believed that our call is to be a people who are all in with Jesus. I believe that the secret to being a truly sent church, a truly missional church, is to fall in love with Jesus more passionately. As we love Jesus, as we're fully devoted to him, our friends are going to notice, and it's gonna push us outward to go and reach out to our friends. Our worship should fuel our mission, right? As we love Jesus more, we just go out and have to tell our friends about him. Okay, love for Jesus is where all impact starts. We can't move on from this. We can't you know, try to graduate from it or, or focus on other things. Instead, we must continue to fall more passionately in love with Jesus. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. Like, that's the call. When we love Jesus with everything we have, we will impact the world. I love how Jesus talks about the gospel being proclaimed in the whole world. From the very beginning, this was the goal for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth for every tribe, tongue, and nation to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross and in his resurrection. And this is why I'm ridiculously passionate about kingdom builders because we are partnering with people who are taking the gospel to unreached places. I'm passionate about this. I wanna partner with people who are doing what I can't do. I can't go everywhere, but there are people who are going and I wanna get behind them in prayer and finances. Out of, out of an overflow of love for Jesus, I wanna partner with others who are going to the ends of the earth or go ourselves. But then on a more local level here in the Cedar Valley, I wanna proclaim the gospel to our community. And not just with our words, but with our lifestyles, with both, right? Go and proclaim it to our community. I pray that, that our church would be a church that is constantly looking for people to share the love of Jesus with as we go throughout our days here in the Cedar Valley. A great example of a couple who has done this at St. Church is Jen and Luke Burkett. A couple years ago, they began to fall in love with Jesus. They came to the church right at the very beginning and they began to fall in love with Jesus and they have grown like crazy in such a short amount of time. As an overflow of that love, Jen was able to share the love of Jesus with her adult daughter, Aubrey, who came to faith in Christ here as well. And then Aubrey brought her boyfriend, Preston, who came to faith in Christ here as well. And then Preston brought his friend, Seth, who came to faith in Christ here as well. And they all five got baptized in 2020. Well, Jen and Luke were 2021, but the rest got baptized in 2022 here at Scent Church. This is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that is radically, unapologetically in love with Jesus and a church who shares the love of Jesus with others as an overflow of our love for him. We wanna help our friends become fully devoted followers of Jesus by letting his love overflow in our lives. If we can fall in love with Jesus like this woman did, we can change the world. We can pour fuel onto the pilot light of the human heart. But sadly, not everyone who gets to know Jesus comes to love him like this. You know, Judas, he spent three years with Jesus and committed the ultimate act of betrayal. It says this in verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them and when they heard it, they were glad 
and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Okay, so instead of sticking with Jesus through the trials that were coming, Judas, he decided to betray him so that he could profit from Jesus' coming, or coming crucifixion. And there's no question that for him, money played a part in this. In John's gospel, he tells us that Judas was the treasurer and he was the one who got mad at the woman or got mad at the woman for, for wasting her nard. It appears that Judas began following Jesus because of what was in it for him. He thought that Jesus was going to usher in a new earthly kingdom and that he would get a place of prominence in it. But in the last few chapters, Jesus has made clear again and again that he came to suffer and that his disciples would have to suffer too. As Judas realized that, that following Jesus, it comes with the prizes, he realized that. And as he realized that there was no immediate glory coming for him, he grew tired of following Jesus and he betrayed him. Oftentimes we can act in the spirit. We follow Jesus because of what's in it for us. But then when things get hard or he asks us to do something we don't want to do, we bail or disobey him. We just ignore him. Unlike the woman who responded to Jesus by giving him everything, even at the cost of ridicule from others, we only want Jesus as long as he's following our wishes. Oftentimes, we're more like Judas. We're more like the traitor than we are like the woman who was the lover. We're more like Judas than the woman. I believe we're more like Judas than we care to admit. We like Jesus when it comes to getting into heaven and being reunited with loved ones after death, but struggle with him when he calls us to deny ourselves. We like Jesus when he blesses us, when he provides for us, but struggle when he calls us to, uh, to respond by displaying generosity. We like Jesus when he loves us right where we're at, but struggle to love him when he calls us out of that. We like Jesus when he agrees with our preconceived notions of what makes sense, but then when the Bible challenges our, our ways of thinking, then we don't like him as much. And in many ways, we're not that different from Judas. We follow Jesus when it's good for us. We settle for either a half-in, half-out Christianity or outright rejection of Jesus. And the devastating thing is when we do this, we lose everything, as Jesus said we would in Mark 8. We can gain the whole world and still forfeit our souls. In Judas' case, he ended up tragically committing suicide. He realized that being his own master was not as great as he thought it would be. And we're often more like the traitor than we are the lover. That's the sad reality. End of sermon. I'm kidding. I'm going to keep going. However, I think most of us here want to be like the lover. I think most of us do. I think this is the desire of our hearts. Maybe you want that, but you just don't know how to get there. Like, how do I fall in love with Jesus more? Well, this takes us back to where we started. Okay, so at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about how this was Passover time, right? Jesus, he's our Passover lamb. He came to take our place. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, he predicted that a human would come and be like our Passover lamb. He said this in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. That's our king there, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was the mission of Jesus' life. He came to be despised. The Son of God came to be rejected, to be acquainted with grief. He came to bear our griefs and our sorrows. He came to be rejected by God and afflicted. He came to be pierced for our sins and crushed for our iniquities. He came to be chastised so we might have peace. He came to be wounded so we might be healed. And while we are like sheep who have gone astray, just like Judas did, and we should have died for it, Jesus decided to become a lamb and take our punishment on himself. And what's even crazier is he didn't protest it. He didn't even open his mouth. He just took it. And why did he do all this? He did it because he loves traitors. He loves Judas. He loves people like you and me. He loves people who have blown it completely. He loves you at your best and at your worst. Right? Your worst moments, he loves you just the same as he does at your best moments. And maybe this morning you never realized that. You've never really got that into your heart. You think that God only loves you when you're performing. Or you think that he could never love someone like you because of the things you've done in the past. But on the cross, he proves his love for you. He gave it all so that you might live. He did it for you. All you have to do is let Jesus cover you with his blood. All you have to do is put his blood on the door frame of your house by accepting what he's done for you. Or maybe you've already accepted his sacrifice. You know that you're a Christian, you follow him, you're a son or daughter of God, but you're struggling with sin and you're wondering if he's tired of it. He's like, I, I'm done with this person. I, I died for them, but they just can't get it figured out, so I'm over it. And you wonder, has he given up on you? He has not given up on you. The blood is enough, right? Even for saved people, the blood is enough. It's not just when you get into heaven. The blood of Jesus is enough to cover you of all your sins. Jesus could never love you more or less than he does right now. He loves you with an extravagant, infinite love, 24 hours a day and seven days a week, and nothing you do can change that. Nothing, nothing you do can change it. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still, still sinners, Christ died for us. This, my friends, is how you become an extravagant lover of Jesus. It's not through religious effort. It's not through trying to behave for God. It's by meeting the lamb who died for traitors. It's by meeting the one who gave up his very life for the people who betrayed him and will continue to betray him. We can become extravagant lovers by encountering the lamb who died for traitors. If you're struggling to love Jesus like the woman did, this is the answer. It's not trying harder, it's falling harder. It's falling harder in love with Jesus. It's tasting his grace. He died for you, let that change you. Okay, with that in mind, the invitation is simple this morning. First, God is calling you to look at the lamb. As John says in Revelation, look at the lamb who was slain for you. Look at him. Think about what he did for you. Think about the fact that he died for you at your worst. And as you look at him, let it stir you to break the flask. Don't just receive it and stop. Respond to it. Pour out your love for Jesus. Repent of that sinful lifestyle. 
Forgive that person who hurt, or who hurt you. End that unhealthy relationship. Prioritize time with him. Lay it all down for him. Not as someone who's trying to earn something. That's not a very good motivator, right? You're not trying to earn something, but you're just responding to him. You've just been utterly changed by his love. Jesus this morning, he's inviting us to encounter his extravagant love and become extravagant lovers. It's simple, and that's the main idea. That's really the whole point of this text. He's inviting us to encounter his extravagant love and become extravagant lovers. When I was a freshman at UNI, the fall retreat for Chi Alpha, it just absolutely changed my life. The Holy Spirit did so much at that event. And I went into the retreat. I had you know, just recommitted my life to the Lord a few months before, so I was, I was pretty fired up about that. But I was still struggling with pornography, and I was really timid in my faith. I, I was really scared, and I was really confused about God's will for my life. On Friday night of the retreat, they gave an opportunity to repent of sin, and I shared my pornography addiction with other people there, and I was shocked by how they just received me in that moment, and they prayed for me. We actually we cried together at the altar. I was just utterly undone by friends who, who truly modeled Jesus to me and embraced me in that moment. And this love, it just messed with me on Friday night. But then on Saturday, so on Friday night, it was as if I was emptied of my sin, was pouring all out to Jesus. And then on Saturday, uh, the speaker talked about something called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is what the Holy Spirit Conference is really about. We talk about the filling of the Spirit at the Holy Spirit Conference. And I'd never heard of it, but I wanted it. I'm like, that sounds amazing. I see it in scripture. I need it. And uh, in this experience is where God fills you with his Holy Spirit and empowers you for mission. It's really beautiful. And when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know, baptism, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means dunk. That's why we go with water baptism, right? We're dunking them. That's what we're doing. So, you know, baptism in the Holy Spirit, you're being dunked in the Spirit of God. And who is the Spirit of God? Well, he's God. And who is God? He is love. So you're being dunked in love. I tell you, in that moment, I was like, Jesus, whatever you want to do, like whatever, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Actually, in the moment, the Lord gave me a vision of you and I at the Communication Arts Center where we used to meet for Kyle being filled up with students. And, you know, that one happened for several years when I came back as the director. Uh, but in that moment, as I was being filled with love, you know, Jesus was starting to give me a picture of his calling for my life. And I was just like, whatever you want to do, or whatever you want to do, if you love me this much, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I don't care, I'll lay it all down for you, are trustworthy, I'll do whatever you say. Because I was undone by his love, I was just immersed in it. I'd never experienced anything like it, it just changed me. In that moment, I answered the call to full-time vocational ministry, which I'm still answering today. And, and that's not for everybody, right? But, but for me, I needed that baptism of love to be able to say yes to that, that crazy call. And here we are, you know, it's uh, you know, 12 years later. But the point is, as he called me into that, I had no reservations because I was in his love. I had no problem saying yes to Jesus when I was dunked in his love. I had no problem. That's the answer. If you're struggling to obey Jesus, you need to get dunked in love. Wait, you need to encounter the love of God. The one who came and was rejected, a man of sorrows, right? The one who for all of eternity was for all of eternity was with the Father and the Spirit in perfect community came here just to be rejected by men, the ones he created. When you encounter that kind of love, it stirs you. It changes you. 
And I just think so many of us are trying so hard to be religious, but we haven't actually encountered that love. You think Jesus is still waiting for you to figure it out. This morning, he's just saying, just receive what I've done for you. Stop trying to measure up. Stop trying to perform for me. Look at the lamb this morning. And as you do, break that flask. It'd be the best thing you ever did. respond with a time of prayer. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to pour his love into our hearts. So what I want to do, let's bring the lights down. Let's just have a moment. I just want to lead us in a moment of prayer. It's going to, it's going to be a few minutes. Just quiet prayer. We're going to have some, some pockets of silence here with just the band playing. I just want to invite him to do what only he can do. Holy Spirit, come. Show us your love. Show us your heart for us. On our best days and our worst days, you love us the same. Lord, press that truth into our hearts. But for those of us who have been in bondage to trying to prove something to you, I pray right now that you would show us that there's nothing to prove. There's nothing to prove at the cross. We don't have to prove anything. You've already proven it all. Lord, as you show us your love, give us a vision of what you want us to do. God, show us what flask we need to break, what step of faith we need to take. light us up with your love.